magisterial epistle of Paul. Uh, this will be our 58th uh, week in this book uh, where we have grown to know and to love uh, the gospel even more than before we started uh, our time in this epistle. If uh, you would turn with me to Romans 7, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25a. And while I touched upon it uh, last time we were together in Romans, uh, I thought it would be uh, good for us to drill down into it a little more uh, as we uh, consider this marvelous, marvelous text. Please stand with me now for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, illumine our hearts and our minds, that we would hear and believe and respond to all that is found here in your word, that you would direct our hearts to Christ, our life and salvation. We pray in his name. Amen. You be seated. Many of you will, of course, recognize the name John Newton. John Newton. He was the 18th century Anglican cleric who penned many famous hymns, but most famously the hymn, what? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a a wretch like me. I wonder where he got that word from, perhaps from our text this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty bad person like me, that saved someone who does a lot of really good things but does a few things sort of poorly. That doesn't quite flow, does it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. What you may not know about John Newton, in addition to his preaching ministry in London and in addition to his writing of wonderful Christian hymns, is that Newton was a prolific letter writer. He was a prolific letter writer. Indeed, Newton thought it was his greatest gift. One of his most frequent correspondents was a Baptist minister, 25 years his junior, named John Ryland. And in one of his last letters to Ryland, uh, by the way, you can uh, read these letters in a compilation of Newton's letters to Ryland that was published by the Banner of Truth not too uh, long ago. But in his last, one of his last letters to Ryland in April of 1803, Newton reflected upon the grace of God that saved him out of a detestable lifestyle in the African slave trade. Newton's sins were great, but God's grace was greater. Newton's sins were great, but God's grace was greater. In his letter to Ryland, Newton wrote the following, quote, Oh, what a horrid wretch was I when on board the Harwich on the coast of Africa and too long afterwards, I am a singular and striking proof that the atoning blood of Jesus 
can cleanse from the most enormous sins. That His grace can soften the hardest heart, subdue the most obstinate habits of evil, and that He is indeed able to save to the uttermost. Amen? He is able to save to the uttermost. Yes, Christ is able to save. It's what Paul, what's Paul has been, been proclaiming throughout the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. And it's what he beautifully summarizes here in our text for this morning. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are three simple headings in my outline for this morning, which you'll find in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. The wretched man, the righteous man, and the redeemed man. The wretched man, the righteous man, and the redeemed man. Well, let's begin with the wretched man. Again, Paul declared, wretched man that I am. Now, by way of reminder, though Paul is using the first person pronoun, I, throughout chapter 7, it is not auto, autobiographical in its, in its truest, most primary sense. Rather, it refers to, uh, Paul's usage of the personal pronoun I refers to collective Israel's experience in their struggle to conform to the law when they were, as it states in verse 14, sold under sin. Remember, some like to interpret uh, Romans 7 as that which is autobiographical, a Christian man who is struggling and fighting with sin and its relationship to, relationship to the law and indwelling sin that remains. Some interpret Romans 7 as, as Paul referring to himself prior to conversion as the unconverted man who's having this personal struggle. What I have put before you over the last several weeks, uh, much more uh, than I will today because we've already covered this material, is that Paul, when he says I, is using a rhetorical device to refer to collective Israel as unconverted and seeking life through the law while enslaved to sin, captured to sin, seeking salvation through the law and struggling with how is it that the sin in me is relating to the law which demands perfection and I, I know I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do and I'm struggling with how all this, this works. I, I, I love the law, Paul says, as a representative of Israel. I love it deeply in my heart and yet I don't obey it. He says in verse 23 that he's captive to the law of sin that dwells in his members. The law, what we have learned, is not, nor was ever intended to be, a means of salvation for sinners. That is good news. The law is not, nor was ever intended to be, a means of salvation for for sinners. Rather, it was given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai for the purpose of exalting God's holiness 
and setting forth his strict requirements of the law so that our sin would be exposed in the light of that law. The law we have learned is like a mirror. It's like a mirror that reflects and exposes all our moral blemishes. It's not like those mirrors you see in kind of gross public bathrooms. You know, the ones that are all, you know, have scratches all over them and you can hardly see because they're made out of some weird material and you're like trying to look in there and you can't really see clearly. No, this is a mirror that is not only a, a perfect mirror, but it, it, it's like those mirrors in the, in the, in the bathrooms in a, in a hotel where you, you turn it around and it shows your face real close. You're like, whoa. It exposes all the moral blemishes, the law does. It reveals the layers upon layers of sin in our lives and shows us our enormous, profound need of a Savior. Does this mean that the law itself is sinful because it cannot save us? Because it is not the way of life for fallen sinners? It's a question, of course, that Paul anticipated by his detractors, from his detractors. Paul answers it in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law is not sin, but if not for the law, I would not have known sin, Paul says. And again in verse 13, Paul anticipates a question. Did that which is good then, that is the law, bring death to me? By no means, he writes. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It is through the commandment that sin reflects its true sinfulness in the presence of God. Again, Christ Church, we must get this if we are going to understand Romans 7, indeed, if we are going to understand the gospel. The law was not given to Israel to save Israel. The law was not given to you to save you. You may have grown up in a home where there was little to no gospel, where there was a sense in which the only way you were going to gain acceptance is by living perfectly according to the strict rules of the home or of some random, arbitrary rules by perhaps a harsh father a harsh mother. Uh, perhaps you uh, grew up in a, in a situation, a context, where you, you felt like the only way to be accepted, even by God himself, is through rules and law. This would be slightly different than what Israel may have experienced as those who received the law uh, through the hands of Moses, the mediator on Mount Sinai, and saw those laws and, and thought, this is what we must do in order to be saved, forgetting the promise. You say, well, pastor, how could they forget the promise? They forgot everything. Look at Old Testament Israel. It was a disaster. The history of Old Testament Israel is cyclical idolatry and disobedience. Over and over and over again, as we read the book of Judges, as we read 1 and 2 Samuel, as we read 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, as we go through the prophets, we see 
over and over the failings of God's people to keep the law. What did they say when the law was given? Moses, we shall do it. The words are haunting because for the rest of the Old Testament, what was being said was, we shall not do it. The law was never given to be a means of salvation. It was given to punctuate, to expose the sinfulness of our sin and thus our essential need of a mediator. What kind of a doctor would a doctor be if you came in and your body was consumed with some disease? And they knew it. And they never told you. And you died, and everybody who loved you thought, you know, if only we would have known the disease, we could have given the proper serum, medication, treatment to save this one that we loved. You see, this is why Paul uses the pronounced word wretch in verse 24. It's a bit of an antiquated word. You probably haven't called anyone a wretch recently. People probably haven't called you that, I hope. But the word is, is a good word as it concerns our spiritual state, our condition before God outside of Christ. In the English dictionary, wretch is defined as a despicable or contemptible person. Wretched man that I am. Because next to the law of God, in the light of God's resplendent holiness, that's exactly what Israel was. Wretched. Again, remember the description from chapter 2 of Romans. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul explains how Israel was so hypocritical in their saying, we have the law, we're the people of God, we have Jewish blood running through our veins, and so we are right with God. And Paul said, no. And as a fellow Jew said, no, that does not make you right with God. Israel was wretched. And my friends, it's exactly what we are, apart from union with Christ. It's what John Newton realized when he came under the conviction of his sin as a wicked slave trader. It's what I, your pastor, realized in a Pickens County jail cell 31 years ago when the Lord gave me a new heart by his grace. It's what so many of you have realized at one point in your own life, and it's perhaps what some among us still need to understand. In my prayers this week, during preparation, I have prayed that if there are any who come into our midst and have never really understood themselves to be a wretch in the sight of God and of the grace that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that you would turn from idols to serve the living and the true God by his grace. The law has no power to save, only to condemn because of our sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 states, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so here we have depravity unveiled, don't we? Depravity unveiled. The law unveils our depravity in our natural 
sinful selves, we like to hide it. We like to justify our sin. We like to excuse it. We like to compare our so-called lesser sins to the sins of others, which we perceive are greater. We are not unlike Adam and Eve, who after eating the forbidden fruit, attempted to hide from God and cover up their sin and their shame. But God's law, it, it exposes us. It shines the light on us. It unveils our depravity. It's like a spiritual CAT scan that shows the spread of the cancer throughout all of our parts and the certainty of death as a result. I shared uh, earlier in, in Sunday school um, about the privilege I had of leading my father uh, to Christ. I also had the privilege of serving communion with the elders of his church in his living room as he laid in his hospice bed filled with cancer, the privilege of preaching the gospel and preaching of heaven and where he will soon go by God's uh, grace. But moving six months before that, there was a very, very difficult day. It was the day that there was talk, because my dad had throat cancer, that there was going to be uh, an extensive surgery, perhaps removing his tongue, doing something to prolong his life. He already had lost the powers of speech. We figured it wouldn't uh, be a whole lot different if his tongue was removed, if that would remove uh, large portions of the cancer, or perhaps even uh, all of it. Uh, and so uh, my mom and dad went to Emory, which is a great hospital in Atlanta, and all kinds of tests were run on him, and there was some, you know, ex expectation, as we all have, that perhaps there's a way, perhaps there's a way to prolong his life, perhaps there's a way for healing. We all hope for these things with our loved ones. And I'll never forget being in the examination room when two doctors walked in and began poking around in my dad's mouth. And I saw the look on their faces. And I knew this was not good. And as they were poking around and looking at each other and showing concern, they looked over and said, uh, this is not good. I don't believe we're going to do the surgery. And I said, would you level with us, please, and tell us how long he has? And they said, at the most, six months. At the most, six months. Then... My mother drapes herself over him and begins to weep. And uh, just, a, just a powerful moment of humanity and brokenness and the wickedness of, of death and, and sin. And, and this is a picture physically of what we are inherently spiritually. We are riddled, filled with cancerous sin. It has affected every part of us. It has spread. It's not just in one area. It's in every area. It's in our, our minds. It's in our hearts. It's in our affections. It's in, in our, our desires. It's, it's in our wills. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It has affected every part of it. That is what is called depravity. And not just partial depravity, but total depravity. It's what Paul was teaching us in the early chapters of Romans, wasn't it? 
Romans 3, 9 through 19. Look there with me if you have your Bibles. Romans 3, 9 through 19. He writes in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. There's the sins of the mind. No one seeks for God. There's the sins of the will. All have turned aside. There's sin of rebellion. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. The sins of our tongue, our words. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world would be accountable to God. The giving of the law in a very real sense is a mercy because God is showing us, he's revealing to us in the light of his holiness and the extension of his holy character through his law that we are sinners and we need him. In other words, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. And this is depravity understood. We have depravity unveiled and we have depravity understood. It's only when we understand our wretched depravity in the light of God's holiness and his unyielding requirements for obedience to his law that we begin to see our profound need of salvation from something outside of us. One of Satan's main strategies, dear ones, is to convince us that we can find what we need inside we can find what we need inside. It's what the prophet, prophetess Oprah Winfrey has been teaching America for the last 30 years. You find salvation in yourself. Dig deep. Discover all that's within you. And you'll find goodness and potential and you'll make peace with God. So long as we are at peace with ourselves, we are taught. If we find salvation by finding, we can find salvation by finding the divine within us or even coming to the realization that we ourselves are gods. But this is a bunch of new age nonsense. And it has been taught not only in our own day, but forever it's been taught that you can find salvation in yourself. In order to have a right standing with God, to have peace with God, sinful mankind needs something or better yet someone to rescue him. We don't need self-improvement. We need deliverance. We don't need moral reformation. We need salvation from the hands of another. We need to be rescued. And so once again, Paul declares, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, you see, in our natural, sinful condition, we are the wretched man. In our natural, sinful condition, we are the wretched man. In 
your natural sinful condition, you are the wretched man. I am the wretched man in my natural sinful condition. Recognizing this, we look not to ourselves for salvation or to the law. We look by faith and repentance to the righteous man. And who is the righteous man? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Luther, in his wonderful hymn, Ein Festeberg, a mighty fortress is our God, wrote, you ask who this might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And he will win the battle. And so we come to the righteous man. Notice with me not only the words wretched man that I am, but the following words in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice Paul, first of all, thanks God. He thanks God the Father. Thanks be to God. This reminds us, of course, of John 3.16, that famous gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're reminded of 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And then he writes in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so Paul says, thanks be to God, because it is according to God's purpose and according to God's love that he sent his son into the world to save us from what we deserved. But then we come to the son's saving work, don't we? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Adam failed to do in the garden as our first representative Having failed to keep God's holy law, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, achieved, accomplished on your behalf. What we have failed to do in Adam, Christ has done. He obeyed God's law. Those strict, unbending requirements and standards, Christ from the moment of his conception all the way through his death and resurrection, obeyed at every point. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself perfectly for every second of his life, outwardly and from the heart, for us. And then as an impeccable law keeper, he became the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He bore our sin, every sin, on Calvary's tree. Dear friend, all of your wretchedness was heaped upon him. All of your sins and mine were wrapped around him, weighing him down, weighing him down on the cross, leaving him alone, abandoned by his friends, 
separated from his father in some mysterious way, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On many Lord's Days, myself or Pastor Michael will declare the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Give you his peace. You know, Christ didn't hear a a benediction on the cross. He heard a malediction. When Christ was hanging there with your sins and my sins wrapped around him, heaped upon him, he heard the Lord curse you. The Lord turn his face away from you and give you hell. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wretched man that I am, wretched people that that we are, who will deliver us? Who will deliver me from deathly union with Adam? Who will deliver me from slavery to sin? Who will deliver me from the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation? Who will deliver me from my selfishness and pride and idolatry? Who will deliver me from this body of death, this body of sin filled with wretchedness, worthy of everlasting damnation in hell? Who will deliver me? Who will redeem me from from what I deserve? Paul declares, thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, O God, for your mercy. After a life, after 50, 60 years of of walking with Jesus and growth and grace and commitment to the church and, and, and loving others and discipling others and coming to the table and witnessing baptisms and coming alongside fellow Christians and going on mission trips and doing all of these deeds, the only thing we have to say as we stand before God one day is, thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what Christ has done for me. Because he's done it all. And so as the redeemed man, we are, first of all, delivered from death in Adam. As the redeemed man, we have been redeemed from death in Adam. We learned that in Romans 5, 12 through 21, didn't we? I want to read verse 19 as a reminder Chapter 5, verse 19, For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that is, by Adam's disobedience, so by the one man's obedience, uh, the man will be made righteous, namely through Christ. Through the one man, Adam, we have died. Through the one man, Christ, we have been made alive. And so we have been redeemed and delivered from death in Adam. We've been delivered, secondly, from slavery to sin. That's what Romans 6 was about. We spent many weeks, even months, in Romans 6. And in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we read, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart and have become slaves of righteousness. Thirdly, we've been delivered from the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation. Chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, 
not in the old way of thinking that our salvation depends on how well we do according to the law. Next, we've been delivered from this body of death. That is, we are no longer enslaved to the passions of our flesh. We are no longer under the dominion of indwelling sin. Sin is in us, but we are no longer in sin. And finally, we've been delivered unto a life of thankfulness and growing obedience. The law plays an important role that we have learned over and over again in Romans 7. That is, it exposes our sin, shows us our need for Christ. But that's not the only role of the law. The winds of antinomianism are blowing through evangelical and even many Reformed churches because the third use of the law is not put into practice. What is the third use of the law? It's that in Christ, forgiven of all of our sins, having a right standing before him because of what Christ has done, the law now serves as a guide for the Christian life. It still shows us our sin and our need for Jesus, which is an ongoing thing our whole life, but it also serves as a guide to how we are called to live in his presence as his sons and daughters. And so we read in Romans 6, 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, That is law as a means of salvation, but you are under grace. Sin no longer has dominion over you if you are in Christ. You have been freed from the dominion of sin. And so we are free to live a life of thankfulness and growing obedience, sanctification. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people or all types of people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, beloved, as we consider Paul's arguments in Romans 7, we are taken to all that we've learned thus far. And it's so wonderfully summarized in this final sort of declaration that is made, even as Paul is still in this mode of using this rhetorical device. Again, he's saying, who will deliver me? from this body of death. He's speaking as collective. Who's going to deliver me? Who's going to deliver us? Thanks be to God. It is through the mediation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we get to chapter 8, we will learn what it is to live the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life. I want to finish this morning in the same way that I started. That is reading John Newton's Penetrating words to Pastor Ryland. Quote, Oh, what a horrid wretch 
was I, when on board the Harwich on the coast of Africa, and too long afterwards, I am a singular and striking proof that the atoning blood of Jesus can cleanse from the most enormous sins, and his grace can soften the hardest heart, subdue the most obstinate habits of evil, and that he is indeed able to save to the uttermost. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous chapter. And we know, Lord, that as Paul wrote this letter, it was not divided up into chapters and verses as we have in our modern conventional Bibles. And we know, Lord, it flows. And there's an argument. And Lord, as we have attempted to follow this argument, we pray, Lord, that it would ring true in our ears the proper role of the law not as a means of salvation, but as a means of exposing our sin and, and showing us our deep and profound need for a Savior. And, O oh Lord, we look to Christ now, the one who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who bore your penalty, penalty as a perfect sacrifice, wholly pleasing to you. And we pray that in him we'd live thankful lives. O oh Lord, may our hearts have an expression, expression of thanksgiving, even as John Newton's did in his letter and in the hymn we are about to sing. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you to please stand.